Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine podcast series. This is Ala Turchujin, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut Internal Medicine Residency. A quick disclaimer before we start, this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not be taken as a medical advice. Let's jump straight into today's episode, and it will be dedicated to an important topic, elder abuse. We are going to focus on the definition, discuss the reporting requirements for physicians, and identify resources available to clinicians to help with an early detection and prevention. Let's begin with statistics. There are reports that suggest that as many as 1 out of 10 older adults experience abuse. This figure is likely grossly underestimated because there is data to suggest that elder abuse is severely underrecognized both in the outpatient clinics as well as in the hospital settings. Elder abuse is associated with adverse mental health outcomes such as depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, so it's always important to keep that in mind. The definition of elder abuse varied over the years, but experts now agree on the five key domains that comprise the definition. First one of them being physical abuse. It is when a person experiences intentional acts of force and injury. Number two is psychological abuse. It's self-explanatory. It's when a person is a subject of verbal or nonverbal behaviors that intimidate, threaten, or disrespect. Number three, sexual abuse. It's when a person is forced to partake in undesired and inappropriate sexual contact. Number four, financial exploitation. It's when a person experiences an inappropriate or illegal use of their personal material resources. Lastly, number five is neglect, when a caretaker willingly or unwillingly fails to meet basic older adults' needs such as food, water, shelter, or medical care. So now that we know what it is, how do we screen for it? While the United States Preventative Services Task Force does not recommend routine screening for elder abuse, there are many organizations, including Joint Commission and the National Academy of Science, as well as American Medical Association, that favor routine screening. The Elder Abuse Suspicion Index is the tool that's most commonly used for screening. The problem with it is that it's only been validated in cognitively intact individuals. We define intact cognition with mini-mental state examination of 24 or greater. There are unfortunately otherwise no validated abuse screening tools in cognitively impaired individuals. In those cases, clinicians usually rely on information from collateral resources, including living facilities or family members. Important to note that all screening in cognitively intact individuals should be conducted with patients separate from their caregiver. In order to do that, this expectation should really be set early in the visit that the caregiver will be asked to leave the exam room at some point during the visit. So now let's talk about the Elder Abuse Suspicion Index itself. It consists of five questions directed to the patient. Each of those questions is corresponding to the five domains we have discussed previously and one of the questions is answered by the clinician. The question directed to the clinician considers both history and physical exam findings. A yes answer to one or more questions is considered a positive screen and warrants further investigation. 
So now let's talk about risk factors for elder abuse. Cohabitation is one of the major risk factors. There are reports that have shown that older adults who live with several family members beyond just a spouse are at an increased risk. Low-income patients are also at a higher risk. Other important risk factors are female gender, isolation, and poor social support. Finally, and most importantly, let's discuss the interventions and what we as clinicians can do to help. While anyone can report a concern of elder abuse to Adult Protective Services, in all the states with mandated reporting laws, designate physicians as mandated reporters. So physicians can help identify abuse early and connect patients to the right resources. In reality, however, fewer than 2% of reports come from the physicians. This is probably because of lack of training or awareness, and this is the reason why this week's topic is so relevant and important. I also wanted to point out that management of a suspected case of elder abuse depends on the severity of the case, so you really have to triage it. If there are concerns for imminent danger, immediate referral to adult protective services should be made. In some cases, require hospitalization to ensure resources are available to develop a safety plan. If, on the other hand, patient is in no imminent danger, physician usually has time to develop a safety plan in the outpatient setting. However, reports still should be filed with adult protective services as soon as you are concerned for elderly abuse. Safety plan includes noting emergency contacts, identifying a place where patient can go in the event of danger, and developing a risk-mitigating strategies. I want to make a final comment regarding resources that we as clinicians have. It is important to keep in mind that whenever we have cases of elderly abuse, it is important to approach it from the interprofessional care team standpoint. In order to maximize this multi-pronged approach, we as clinicians should routinely make all members of the care team aware of our concerns. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we will see you in our next episode.